Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm very good, thanks, Darren. It's a, it's a lovely day. How are you? <laughs> I love that you're trying to match my intensity. I'm very excited because we have... Oh, what a movie we have to talk about. Oh, what a lovely movie. We are talking about George Miller's 2015 smash, Mad Max. And joining us for this conversation, we've got two fantastic guests. We've got the wonderful Deirdre Malumbi. How are you, Dee? I'm very well. How are you? I'm fantastic. Really looking forward to this. And the wonderful Grace Duffy. How are you, Grace? I'm well, thank you. All right. So just before we begin, I think everybody's roughly familiar with George Miller's kind of Mad Max. Wait, hold on. How's Darren? That That is a profound we, question. Do- did you say? <laughs> Nobody ever asks how Darren is. <gasps> Let, let's sit down, kids, and, and let's rap. <laughs> no, no, but uh, yeah, so we were talking about Mad Max Fury Road, because I'm very evasive and I'm not going to answer that question, but also I'm excited <laughs> to talk about this movie. Um, Mad Max Fury Road is a paradox of a film. It is one of the most troubled productions uh, in American movie history, uh, from its genesis in 1998 through to its final release in 2015. A lot of tension on set. The production was shut down no fewer than three times. The version that appeared on screen was radically different than the one that was originally intended. It is both a summer blockbuster and has arguably been put in the context of 1920s French surrealism's pure cinema. It is a box office smash of franchise film, the fourth in the Mad Max franchise. Wait a but second. It... Box office smash? What what, uh, what 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 does it need to be defined as a smash? Where where is the smash bar? Um, <laughs> smash bar. <laughs> you, you you hit it very enthusiastically while you're playing like you know movie tycoon 2017. You hit the smash bar. Um, yeah yeah. Sma- okay. Smash the smash bar. Um, yes, but like it, it was is... it wasn't a flop, right? It absolutely was not a flop. It <laughs> no, was the Was it a smash? <laughs> ah, it was a fairly big hit, to be fair. It made a lot of money. It also cost a lot of money, right? <laughs> well, yes, movies that take, what, you know, 17 years to release typically rack up a fairly hefty backlog, although it was actually quite cheap as far as these sort of scale of movies go. It's like I'm running an audit. I'm sorry. It's like, wait a second, hold on. It's like <laughs> Dragon's Den. Yeah. I'm like, slow me down. I want to explain those financials. We're going to crunch some numbers for you here, Andrew. Um, But yes, okay, fine. He wrote the receipts. It has a total budget of somewhere near $150 million and a total box office of $375 million at the worldwide box office, which is quite impressive for an R-rated, non-family-friendly film. It is the highest grossing movie in the Mad Max franchise. It is also, as we mentioned, a franchise film. It is either a sequel or a reboot, depending on how you look at it. But it is also a movie that swept the Oscars. It earned 10 Oscar nominations, including Best Picture and Best Director at the 2016 ceremony, and won six. More Oscars than any other movie won that year, and more craft Oscars than any other movie apart from Titanic won. It is a film that is regarded as like a car chase that goes one direction, turns around in a U-turn, and then runs back in the same direction, but at the same time is regarded as the best movie of the decade by uh, by publications as robust as USA Today, The AV Club, World of Real, Pace Magazine, Consequence of Sound, Film School Rejects. Other filmmakers look at Mad Max Fury Road in awe. Steven Soderbergh said, I don't understand how they're still not shooting that film, and I don't understand how hundreds of people aren't dead. Apparently Bong Joon-ho was moved to tears on watching it. So yes, it is a singular... Love of director, Bong. Yeah, it is a surreal... Uh, it is a surreal film, a film of contradictions. But before we get into all that, let's but talk Darren, about... 
I mean, who cares about what those people have to say? Yes, that is it exactly. Um, it is a film that is relatively recent in memory. It's only six years old um, as we're recording this. I think, you know, without giving away any of our ages, I think all of us are old enough to remember having seen it. So, um, Grace, do you remember the first time that you saw Mad Max Fury Road? Did you see it in the cinema? Did you wait for it on home media? Did you see it opening night? I saw it in the cinema and I think at, at time of recording, I think I've seen it five times in the cinema. We went maybe, I think, four times when it was on its original theatrical run. And then when it was re-released the following year, possibly for a kind of an Oscar season, we went again. So it was great. <laughs> I remember I went to see it. Um, I think it had been out for maybe two weeks when I went to see it because I had been away on a trip with some of my friends. And even in the space of those two weeks, um, I just remember my Twitter feed was completely like blowing up with it and everyone was just talking about how it was this revolutionary incredible film that they couldn't believe how good it was essentially and considering I had seen the trailer for it I think a couple of months earlier I was kind of like meh you know whatever might see it but wasn't blown away and then when I went to see it I was just like oh this is a thing <laughs> that's really cool um and and just yeah felt completely blew away by it I'm, I'm have you seen it since the cinema? Yeah. The, and the, like the different versions and things? Oh, no, I'm not interested in the black and white version because right. I, well, black, I don't understand the appeal of black and white or whatever yeah, they call it. Chrome, yeah. um, black and white versions anyway, because I just don't. But um, with this film in particular, like the, the color palette and the landscapes and everything are so beautiful and such an inherent part of like evoking that, that, atmosphere in the world building that i genuinely don't understand why anyone would want to see it in black and chrome but that's just me well to answer that question very directly um the reason why george miller wanted to see it in black and white is because he had a profound memory during the production of uh mad max uh thunder sorry was it the uh thunder road the second one um and he remembered that when he went to the recording of the soundtrack with i believe it was the city orchestra they had played uh because it cost too much money to make an actual reel of the film to screen for the orchestra to score to they'd actually put together a really cheap and grubby black and white version he remembered watching it uh, his second mad max movie in that uh kind of in that kind of uh, format and thinking that was great and I finally when road Fury warrior by the way road, road warrior, warrior it is yeah, yeah, road yeah. Warrior. yeah. Th thunder dome is the third one apologies yeah. and thunder road is the jim cummings movie and bruce springsteen <laughs> song that is what's going on in darren's Thun head right now thunder alley yeah. is, is the restaurant <laughs> in fleet street <laughs> yeah all these sort of connections there but yeah that's why he, he released it in black and white because he wanted to recapture that feeling of watching um watching road warrior uh, being kind of scored and looking at the kind of black and white work print and going that actually looks kind of gnarly and hip and indie um but yeah so that that's kind of why why that was uh but d what about yourself do you remember the first time that you saw it i do i actually went to uh it was a press screening of this for the first time and i'll never forget i was sitting there watching the it and i think it was the moment where Tom Hardy is about to be like knocked out he's all like chained up and stuff and all like gagged and everything and he's about to fall out and they like pull him back and it's that super sped up sequence and then the title just like drops Mad Max Fury Road <laughs> and then it keeps going and I was like this film is so freaking cool I cannot believe I get to watch it I was just so so excited it had been so long since I had watched a movie that I was like less than five minutes in that I was like, yeah. 
you know it's yeah. just mm-hmm. oh it's so oh anyway I'll get into it more when we're actually reviewing it but um so I saw it on the big screen twice and I remember telling my then boyfriend now fiance um to go see it I was like hon it's the coolest movie and you were gonna love it I swear to god but he was like eh, I don't know I don't know and then he eventually did go to see it with his friend loved it so then a whole group of us went everyone loved it I actually did see it in black and chrome as well on the big screen really liked seeing that kind of version of it but I do prefer the original uh, which I think holds some kind of record for being like the most orange movie ever or something which I can definitely see (laughs) um, like looking at that cinematography and everything I've probably seen Mad Max Fury Road about five or six times in total I can't remember exactly how many but I've seen it on DVD since I watched it on um, Amazon Prime in the last couple of months now unfortunately they have removed it since as is the nature with movies on on demand uh, services so I was hoping to kind of get a rewatch of it this week but I didn't but I figured it was fresh enough in my head having (laughs) seen it two months ago but yeah any movie night that you know someone feels like putting on Mad Max Fury Road I'm like yeah I'm there Um, we should actually mention because I think both Grace and Dee have mentioned it so far the color scheme of the movie which is quite striking the most orange movie ever very much consciously chosen by Miller very early in the process because Road Warrior had been hugely influential in its depiction of post-apocalyptic worlds, and that's typically desaturated and kind of grainy. And a lot of movies that came out around the 2010s had that sort of feel. Think of movies like The Road, for example, or Book of Eli with um, Denzel Washington for the Hughes brothers, I think, as well. Um, And so the decision that he made with Fury Road was to go very much the opposite direction and crank the color up dramatically. Um, and get this high contrast, high saturation look. And it is gorgeous. And it's probably the best thing about the film. And I think both Grace and Dee are entirely right that like when you put it in black and white, and we'll maybe talk about later on some of the stuff that you gain putting it in black and white, but you lose a lot and you lose that color and you lose that vibrancy and you lose that energy, which I think is a large part of kind of what makes this essential and makes it work. But Andrew, what about yourself? Do you remember the first time you saw Fury Road? I am not sure I do, but I think it must, I, I, I reckon it must have been in cinema. Yeah, I, I I remember enjoying it and and but also being kind of um underwhelmed a little bit. I think I might have made the mistake of of letting the hype kind of around it grow and then like I I because I I think the right way to see this is kind of not knowing what it is and and being <laughs> dropped into it and be like, "Wow." You know, I think I was probably too excited for it. <laughs> When I when I when I went to see it, and it 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 I kind of came away from it thinking that um, uh, while it was good, it wasn't as good as I was kind of hoping it, it was going to be. I guess. Well, what's the story about the can premiere? Where apparently, like, and you know, everybody talks about like standing ovations when movie movies play a can, and this I think played at the same can film festival as Inside Out, um, like the 2015 one. But apparently, when this film ended, it didn't get the uh, you know 17 minute standing ovation that tends to generate headlines when it happens every freaking year. Apparently, when this ended in Cannes to a room full of people who had no idea what they're in for, apparently <coughs> it ended with a guttural howl from the audience, which I kind of adore. Is the guttural howl a good thing or a bad thing? Because well, I can imagine both from a can audience. <laughs> some sort of like pri- apparently it was some sort of like primal resonance in the crowd, according to people who were there. Scraping each other. <laughs> <laughs> and Poetic saying witness Witness me, witness me. Um But uh yeah, and for myself actually, I do remember the first time I saw it. I remember the there was a Warner Brothers preview screening of it in the evening because I was not able to get out of work to go and see the press screening. 
And I actually blew that off to go and see it with uh, our mutual friend, Kieran Gillen, I think, who's been a guest on this podcast. So myself and Kieran went to see it down in, um, not Bray, because Bray doesn't have a cinema apart from The Mermaid. So the Dunleary, I think, Dunleary are at down somewhere like that. And it was just, it was a joy. Um, seeing, like, again, because Kieran Gillen, our, our friend, is a big 80s movie fan. I'm kind of, I was kind of agnostic on the Mad Max movies. I liked Road Warrior. I thought Thunderdome was far, far too long. And I thought the original Mad Max was, you know, a nice little indie. Um, and it just blew my mind. It was just dazzling to kind of behold and just the kinetic energy of it and coming out shaking and wondering what had I seen and then going to see it again to make sure I had seen what I thought I'd seen, which is one of those great experiences of going back to the cinema. Um, all right, then. So why are they going back? Yeah. Why are they turning around? Well, to be fair, that's that's my 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 dad's review of, uh, of Fury Road. My dad's review of Fury Road is, you know, I mean, look, I was pretty excited when they're heading that way. But I was much less interested when they're heading the other way. I feel like they'd already done that bit. It just felt like they were just extending the plot. Um, but yes, we'll probably talk about that in the spoiler zone. So before we jump into the spoiler zone, three questions uh, to get us started. So D, do you think that Mad Max Fury Road belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? I wholeheartedly do, actually. I do think it is the best movie of 2015. And it's one of my personal favorite movies of all time. I just think when it comes to... I mean, I think it's always important to like look at and appreciate movies for like what they are. And I look at Mad Max Fury Road very much as an action movie. And when it comes to the kind of pinnacle or the standard of the action genre in the last, I'd say, 20 years, really, Mad Max Fury Road would come on top for me and John Wick as well. I think that the fact that they um, utilize a lot of stunt work, utilize a lot of practical effects has really kind of worked to their advantage. Now, I know that obviously CGI does feature in Mad Max as well with the big like sandstorm and elements like that and stuff. Um, but I just think that it's like magnificently crafted. It's just like a really, really excellent movie. And yeah, I would, I do think it's one of the best movies of all time. And just because it's one of the more recent movies compared to other movies of all uh, on that compared to other movies on that list doesn't mean it should be excluded by any means yeah i think it's already been kind of accepted as part of the the canon as part of the classics it's like again the fact that like at the end of the 2010s people weren't pointing to movies like say the master as you know well i'm sure some journals were i'm sure cahier du cinema wasn't like fury road is the best movie of all time although i think it plays in their top 10 but the fact that you had critics uh, like national review boards coming out and saying this is the best movie of the decade, not the best action movie of the decade, not the best franchise film of the decade, the best film, the best piece of film art that was produced in these 10 years. So I think it kind of, I think it, it has a very, very valid claim to that. And we'll probably talk about in the spoiler zone in terms of that stuff, the, the physical aspect of it and the, the kind of the tactile nature of it and the fact that it emerged as it did, you know, as part of a pushback against CGI because it was the same year that The Force Awakens was released and that leaned very heavily on practical effects as well. Um, as much as a Star Wars film can. But Grace, what about yourself? Do you think The Fury Road belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Yeah. No, I, I certainly would include it because it's one of those, um, for all of the reasons that, that have already been outlined, but for me as well, it's one of those um, kind of rare experiences that I've had where like the instant, like the, even the very first time that I watched it, I just remember thinking, I... I'm never going to get sick of this movie. Like there are certain films that you watch and you just know immediately they're always going to have a special place in your own kind of personal regard. And this was one of them because it was just such a breathtaking, like sensory experience. But even beyond the the obvious craft work, 
um, and, and the exemplary amount of effort that went into that. Um, I think the themes of the film are also quite timeless and really rousing and really resonated with me. And I think the fact that you can, like, the, I suppose this shouldn't really be so surprising, but it's not that often personally, that I think you find that level of depth and resonance in a film that still has really cool <laughs> car crashes and explosions and various other set pieces going on. So um, just for like the, the totality of the experience and how well it's executed, then I would say yes, definitely. Oh. Um, in terms of being a movie that you never get sick of, because again, one of the big things when it was named like the best movie of the decade by all these publications, one of the big arguments was over what constitutes the best movie. And like one of the big arguments I saw in favor of Mad Max was that it was the rare movie you could watch 10 times in a row and probably not get sick of, which is, is mm -hmm. quite something about the film. Uh, and Andrew, what about yourself? Do you think it belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Guys, I'm really sorry. <laughs> um... <laughs> I, I I don't I, I it just didn't Ew. connect with us. <laughs> I know you're yeah you're, like I'm 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 not I I'm really glad because this means Andrew gets to be the bad guy this week. Exactly because um. <laughs> I was thinking Darren Darren will do the right thing <laughs> if, 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 if I pretend that I that that I like it. Darren will say. Well, actually, I don't like. It. Um, no, no, it, it's not that I. It's not that I don't like it. It's just that I. I didn't. Unfortunately, I. I. I didn't feel like I connected with it. Um, while I. While I was kind of what I found it Im, Im, impressive in in a lot of the ways that people have mentioned, and there's a lot that that Dee and Grace have said that I don't disagree with. Um, it just did, didn't didn't really um, it didn't grab me. I'm a bit like Kahir the cinema. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, they, they um Andrew Quinn, the cultural institution. <laughs> no, no. Can I hear the cinema just let out a guttural roar when they were asked like if it was in their top ten movies of the decade. Um yeah. They were like Yeah. and the LA Times was I'm afraid we can't count that, sir. Um... <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I I mean, having said that, no like me not connecting with it. There are a lot of these sorts of movies on the list. I guess, when I say these sorts of movies, I don't mean that in a kind of a disparaging way. Although it's a kind of it's a it's it's a it's that kind of action movie that might be very um, that might be geared towards a, a kind of a, um, a young or or even like kind of like a teenage um, audience that's already quite well served on the 250 but maybe the question is like is this a better um representation of that um, kind of movie for that audience yeah mm. yeah um and maybe maybe it has maybe it has a an, an argument on 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 that basis um so yeah i'll i'll, I'll be agnostic <laughs> And I'll I'll give a very firm yes. And again, this is one of the things where, you know, is there a difference between the first two questions that we ask here? And being honest, I love Mad Max Fury Road, but I think there's a much stronger argument for it being one of the best movies of all time, just in terms of how it's constructed, what it does, how it does what it does, the fact that it comes together so well, the fact that it represents, it arrives at a perfect moment in so, so many ways. I mean, Grace described the themes of the movie as timeless, um, and I think they certainly are, but they're also incredibly timely. The movie was released one month and one day before Donald J. Trump would announce his candidacy for the U.S. presidency. 
read into that what you will. It was released two months after Harvey Weinstein was arrested and the investigation into him began that would propel the Me Too movement to prominence, um, which obviously resonates with the themes of the movie as well. But even in terms of production, it arrived at a time where Hollywood was becoming increasingly consumed by franchise filmmaking. And this is a franchise film, to be clear, but leaning towards CGI, leaning towards nostalgia, leaning towards kind of like empty platitudes and kind of just hollowness and kind of like, again, that, that CGI lack of tactileness. And this arrives. And this is a movie that is, yes, a franchise film, but is also constructed, you know, with the most love and the most care in the world that is, you know, timely resonant, that has things to say about the way the world is, that is constructed with a love of cinema as an art form, right down to things like its manipulation of images, the way in which it's edited. And again, one of the big Oscars that it won was the best editing Oscar that went to Margaret uh, Sixel. Sixel? Um, and like the way in which is just put together so, so beautifully. Um, so, yeah, I absolutely do think that it belongs on this list. If you are looking for a movie that represents the ideal in the 2010s, this is really it. And again, one of the big arguments in terms of like the why the critical response to it was so rapturous. And maybe we'll talk about this in the spoiler zone. But some of its critics have argued that the reason why film critics in particular love this so much uh, was because it represented something, you know, vaguely nostalgic or old-fashioned in an era where movies are becoming increasingly, you know, to quote Martin Scorsese in that uh, Harper's essay, content. This very much didn't feel like this. This felt almost like a rejection of that. And kind of, I think, you know, I think all that plays into it being the perfect kind of example of, of what it is and what it's trying to do. So yes, I think it belongs on this list. Absolutely. Um, and uh, D, would it be on your own personal 250? Absolutely. It might even be in my top 10, if not certainly my top 20. I mean, it's my laptop screen. So what does that tell you? <laughs> I love this movie. It's so freaking good. It's the it's, you know, the opening shot of Mad Max looking was, out in his car. Obviously, yeah, I, was, I was about to ask which image was it? Um, OK, so it is. Yeah. It's that shot of him where the little lizard creeps up. I think up, it, is it might also I need to double check, but I think it might also be my Twitter background at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so I really, really, really like it. Um, um, yeah. And Grace, what about yourself? Would it be in your own personal 250, your own 250 favorite movies of all time? Yeah, and probably just narrowly outside the top 10 as well, I would say. Yeah, because I think you and I, we did the Scanon uh, podcast for the end of the decade together. And I think it was on both your, my and Luke's top 10 of the decade, if I remember correctly, yeah? That would seem about right. I don't actually remember what films I had in my top 10, um, but it would be very strange if I hadn't included this one and probably very near the top as well. Yeah. Um, and, and Andrew, I guess, I suspect we know what the answer is going to be and I suspect it feels a little cruel to single you out, but would it be in your own personal 250, Andrew? No, no, it it, it, it wouldn't. Yeah, it, it, I, I don't, um, like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uncertain of whether I want to watch it again. Um, not not that I like did really um, have too much bad to say about it, but it it, it I didn't. Um, I'm looking forward maybe to hearing what people liked about it because I I didn't get the same kind of depth from it. It just felt very on the nose, and and maybe the, maybe there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but yeah, no, it it it. Not for, not not my own personal list. 
It's okay. My mom didn't get it either. So I'm really disappointed. <laughs> or, or my dad. Okay, yeah. I told my I told my mom to go see it and she was like, I just didn't get it, Dee. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, Why? my mother loved it, so she can she can be the cool mom here, but she does have exemplary taste in films most of the time. Why didn't they just sit down and have a nice conversation about it? That's my question. Um, to be clear, when I say okay, boomer, I'm talking about me and, and not Dee's <laughs> mother. Not mother. Um, uh, but uh, Andrew, would you go so far as to say it was mediocre? I, I actually would, Darren, and, and curse you for for um, for putting words in my mouth. Um, um, well, like, like, no, it's it's very difficult to to describe it as mediocre because yeah. it is spectacular, and like you would have to be blind and deaf to to not recognize that. Um, but I I wish um, for all of the I like. I'm the minority, but I, I feel like for all the effort that went into it, I wish it was a better movie. You know, and and there's so much great stuff in it. That, yeah, like, if only I, George I Miller had taken another five years. You know, maybe maybe another six years, he could have hammered all that stuff out. <laughs> exactly. No, but I, I I did come away from it thinking that like it could have. It, it, I don't know. Maybe Mad Max movies aren't for me. <laughs> You're not mad about it, no. I just um, wanted to see Mel Gibson again. <laughs> <laughs> no, Andrew, no, no. <laughs> Andrew posting at what was the famous we hunt not we hunt the mammoth the other one oh Return of Kings complaining about Charlize Theron. Nobody yells at Mad Max, and unfortunately, we are probably going to have to talk about that in the spoiler zone. Um, but for myself. Probably yes. Um, it was on my end of decade list and I've only been alive for so many decades. So logically, it makes sense that it would probably be in my top 250. Um, it is a joy. Uh, I really, really love it. And I've watched it quite a few times for various things. Anytime I can come up with an excuse to watch Mad Max, I have watched Mad Max Fury Road. Um, it is just, it is a joy and delight. And then final question before we jump to the spoiler zone. So D, if listeners have not watched Mad Max Fury Road, if they haven't seen it, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it might even be fun to watch old Mad Max movies. Sure. Why the heck not? I mean, <laughs> what else I are you would, doing? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would agree with you in that it's it's really interesting to see the first Mad Max just yeah. from the perspective of the fact that it was so low budget and that it made like so much in the box office. Wasn't it for a time like the highest grossing Australian like, movie? film? I think. Yeah, something like that. Exactly. Um, Now I saw Road Warrior first and I really, really like that. Yeah. Like as an 80s kind of slightly camp action movie it's yeah. a lot of fun just be aware that you should like don't compare it to Mad Max Fury Road because Fury Road like so <laughs> heightens up the ante and the action and everything like it's a bit unfair to compare them like you have to look at Road Warrior as like an 80s movie and then Thunderdome I felt like went too far into the whole camp <laughs> An existentialism thing. Yeah, that's no. It didn't. It didn't quite work. Although it was gas seeing like Tina Turner in that world. Um, it's a bit. And of it's fun. always fun to say two men enter, one man leaves. Yeah. If if anything, we got that whole bit out of it. So why the heck not? Um, and it's an interesting one from the perspective of like when you compare Thunderdome to other movies, kind of around that time, like Waterworld and other ones like that. Or Hook. Where- or hook yeah but like that whole theme of like you know like the children are the next generation we have to bring the children to kind of the next like 
you know, land or whatever where life can still exist. It's quite interesting from that perspective, which is slightly different to what Fury Road looks at. Um, but I'm going off track here. Absolutely watch Fury Road. And yeah, check out the Mad Max movies as well, because like in terms of Australian cinema as well, they're incredible movies. Yeah. Um, no rabbit proof, no rabbit proof fence here. It's like, no, no, no. What you really want to watch is the Mad Max movies. Um, it actually took to bring back to what D said there in terms of the Road Warrior and how much of an evolution this is. Road Warrior had 120 cuts in just over 90 minutes, and it was considered a very fast movie in terms of editing. This movie has 2,700 cuts over the course of its like 110 minute runtime, uh, which is absurd, dazzling and dizzying. But we'll talk about that when we get to the spoiler zone. But Grace, what about yourself? Would you recommend that listeners pause the podcast and watch Fury Road if they haven't already? Yes, absolutely. Um, I've actually, I've only seen two of the other Mad Max movies and in typical me fashion, I don't really remember much about them. Um, but the one thing I would say is that I don't think you need to have seen either of them to appreciate this, um, which, you know, if that are an impediment to anyone wanting to see it, you can watch this film as a standalone movie and it completely stands up. It has its own kind of little internal mythology um but it's absolutely worth your time and if you are interested in the expanded eco-socialist universe of george miller i also recommend babe and its sequel pig in the city which is massively yes. underappreciated I, I would contend um, yes yes um in terms of continuity as well it is worth noting grace is entirely right it is um hard to quantify whether it is a sequel or a reboot everybody has their own theories and miller himself has changed the answer to that question several times there's a recurring theory that the that the version of mad max who appears in fury road may be the kid from the road warrior possibly or that it may actually be a prequel to beyond thunderdome or something similar along those lines uh, but i well, do it's not the kid in the first mad max <laughs> no it's certainly not yeah. <laughs> um, but yes I I, I always like the the idea that um what you call it that that the various stories and in the individual films are not necessarily meant to be the same character um or same group of characters but they're kind of just collected different mythologies from this like post-apocalyptic world that somebody is kind of gathering and you know what's the word um kind of like folklore just handing them down stories by mouth sort of thing I was just going to say, by that extension, you have uh, Hugh Keysburn, of course, because he plays Immortan Joe. Toe I think cutter. you were about to say that toe cutter. Yeah, who is. So he plays the antagonist in the original Mad Max. And then he plays Morton Joe in this one. Um, sadly passed away, of course, just recently. Uh, fantastic actor. But it's interesting as well that there's like that kind of connection there. I find that absolutely fascinating when I find that out. Yeah. Um, in terms of, of what Grace said there, actually, it's worth noting that like Miller sees filmmaking as the act of collective dreaming. And that's how he kind of that's how he sees the continuity of the Mad Max movies, where they're again, where Max is an archetype. He's like the man with no name. And again, you know, not to get too spoilery, the ending of the movie is the classic Western, the ending of the searchers, you know, the idea of the man who helps perhaps to fashion paradise, but ha there's no place in paradise for him. So he wanders the wasteland and you get the epilogue as well. So I do kind of like that aspect and where sequels. it is. Yeah, it also does allow for sequels. Yes, it does. Very much so. And recasting, crucially. It's, it's just, it's, it works out in so many levels. Um, and Andrew, would you recommend that listeners pause the podcast and watch Mad Max Fury Road? Given that you're never going to watch it again. Well, yeah, I'm not. But that doesn't mean that that, that you shouldn't. For all of the reasons that, that, that Grace and Dee and probably Darren will give... Um, but 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 also for like for my own money, if you haven't seen it, you need to see it. Um, it is it is um, um, an in, an incredible piece of of film, whether you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> 
So <laughs> yeah, I love that we uh, bullied I, Andrew into agreeing with us. It's like, well, no, no, I, I, I know, I like, know, I'm, I, kidding, I I'm kidding. I genuinely wouldn't tell people not to watch it. Yeah. Sorry, is that a double negative? <laughs> <laughs> I would tell people to watch it. Um, yeah. So yeah. watch it, <laughs> and 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 listen, listen to um the um the Grace and D uh version where where all my bits are cut out. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll the, just for our Patreon. <laughs> But um, yeah, no, I would, I would, I would kind of third the recommendation or fourth the recommendation that you should, yep, yeah, definitely watch it, even just to have that again, that wonderful Steven Soderbergh reaction, which is, I have no idea how they're not still shooting this, and I have no idea how hundreds of people are not dead after this, um, because it's just, it is amazing. Where are of- the bodies? Uh, well, to, to be fair, Miller, um, after I think one of his earlier films, there was an accident in which a stunt person was injured, and he, after that, he swore that he would never take unnecessary risks. Um, so apparently, despite how dangerous everything looks in this film and how practical everything was, uh, everybody was apparently incredibly safe while doing it, uh, which is remarkable. They're, they're not incredibly buried in the desert. Uh, <laughs> that in, we know of, yeah, yet. A, yeah, nobody's uncovered the bodies yet. Um, all right, then. Uh, with that in mind, then we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. So, Grace, what is Mad Max Fury Road about for you? What isn't it about, I suppose, is a good question. I suppose on the surface of it, it's um, it's a really moving and quite pointed parable about environmental destruction, um, the wasteful nature of capitalism, the need for eco-socialism to address the world's problems. And then underneath all of those, you know, very lightweight, easygoing themes, you also have this really beautiful story of uh, female empowerment and people coming to terms, I suppose, with trauma and loss and rediscovering their own identity. Like one of my I know you mentioned this earlier as a negative from your dad's perspective, but one of my favorite parts of this film is actually the fact that they realize they have to go back to where they came from in order to progress because it's like, um, I think I'm trying to remember this quote now that isn't, uh, I think it's a Neil Gaiman quote, but it's not coming to me. It's something anyway about um, kind of moving to a different place uh, in an attempt to escape, you know, issues or trauma or hardship. And then you discover essentially that, you know, you're still the same person. You're just somewhere new. So it's just the environment around you changes, but all of the things you're trying to deal with don't. And I think this film um, addresses that quite head on by having them realize that they can't keep running from where they came from forever. They have to go back and kind of tear things down and build new foundations and, and, you know, rebuild themselves from the ground up. And I just, I really like that, that kind of metaphor and that message in it um, about kind of confronting things head on and not running away and expecting things to magically disappear. So those are just a few of the themes that I pick up in the film. Um, I'm curious to see what other people take from it. Yeah, on, on that point, actually, about like the theme of kind of going back and fixing things, that wonderful quote that he has where he says, if you can't fix what's broken, you will go insane. And the idea, like at one point, the characters have to choose between continuing to head forward across the salt flats or heading back and trying to reclaim uh, Immortan Joe's kingdom, the Citadel. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I find interesting is, and again, this is the one of the moments where I describe it as being both timeless and incredibly timely. 
this movie arrived in 2015 on the wave of what might be described as kind of a cusp of kind of uh, sorry cusp of a wave of revolutionary uh, science fiction a uh, science fiction that was very much about the idea of remaking and remolding the world the idea that the world was fundamentally broken and the only way to fix it was through genuinely radical change in order to upend the social order so i'm thinking of things like say the girl with all the gifts which is a zombie movie that ends because we're in the spoiler zone with the suggestion that maybe the young zombies will manage the world better than mankind will or ex machina which is a story about like a, a guy who develops an artificial intelligence and it ends with maybe the artificial intelligence locks a dude in a room and unleashes itself on the world and maybe that's the best possible happy ending that this story has shows like say westworld for example which is about like a world in which mankind has built like robotic slaves to perpetuate the system of capitalism and oppression and basically says yeah but you know what will be great when those robots rise up, wipe us out and build their own society on our graves, um, that sort of stuff. But you also even have, I would argue, along those lines, shows like Mr. Robot as well, which is, again, very much about this idea that society is broken, but it has to be fixed. And I find it interesting that all these kind of shows and kind of movies arrived around 2015, like on the button at the end of the Obama era, before we hit, obviously, the kind of like the earthquake that came in the years that followed. And I find that kind of tension fascinating between the two because you don't really see like after that, after that, in say 2017, you get movies like, say, The Last Jedi, which is like the best that you can hope for is that you have the idea of hope in the face of absolute tyranny or movies like Wonder Woman, which are like, well, maybe mankind is not worth saving or can't be saved, but you still have to try anyway. I find it in, like Mad Max as a movie is a movie I associate very much with that moment in 2015 where it's like the world is broken. Things are possibly lost. Society is possibly on the cusp of collapsing and falling into itself. But, and again, this is an image the movie comes back to repeatedly, if you drive directly into the storm, as Furiosa does at the start, and then in a nice bit of symmetry you get at the end when they run back into a Morton Joe's kind of forces to take the Citadel, maybe, maybe you can fix it. Maybe the world can be repaired. Hope is, is you know, hope is dangerous, but hope has value. And it's, it's mm -hmm. something I associate with, like, being... When I say the perfect movie at the perfect time, that's kind of a sentiment that I associate with that moment culturally, like 2015, yeah. 2016. I remember that year as well. Like there was just this between this and The Force Awakens. Like I, I remember this really, it seems very quaint now in hindsight, but there was an article and I cannot remember for the life of me who wrote it, but I think it was in The Guardian. And it was just this, it was around like a new year between like December 2015 and January 2016. And the author was kind of making the point that like, oh, these like wonderful sort of hopeful narratives in cinema and, you know, something that cinema that like blockbuster cinema that feels more inclusive in certain ways and more kind of representative of maybe certain real world issues and things like that. And this, the, the author was kind of just like, you know, oh, is this a sign that, you know, we as a society are sort of starting to come together and, and, and think about these things and maybe progress is possible. And then, you know, we entered the four year storm that is continually, that is continuing as we speak. Um, and I just, I remember that article and being like, oh, what a nice sentiment. And then everything immediately just collapsed. Yeah. It was wonderful. I, I... I I didn't come away from the movie movie thinking uh that I I I I felt like um the point about like hope is a mistake could have still stood <laughs> and that he's he's w walking away kind of thinking I'm not going to stay because eventually you guys are going to run out of water and start killing each other again so you have a good time here I'm going to keep moving 
kind well, of um, to be fair george miller made a similar point like in interviews i think last year george miller said that he gives furiosa a 50 50 chance whether she becomes a tyrant or a benevolent leader yeah, yeah. and i got that sense as well i'm like i believe there, there might be a quote from a certain well-known batman film that might be relevant there <laughs> <laughs> i am not gonna say it um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean the, the well, Alfred told Max that like uh, it's a symbol. Is the if you can make yourself, if you can make yourself more than endure, yeah, more than an idea, yeah, more than a man, more than an idea. Um, it, it it's good for casting. Um, um, um yeah. I don't know. I, you know, it's funny. I I get everything that each of you guys are saying, but I also am kind. Of, well, one one thing that did like um stand out for me i'd say if we're kind of doing like the deep dive thing is really the feminist um messages and agenda of it i absolutely loved i loved its whole message of women should be running the world and it's interesting darren that with a lot of examples you made now you could make the counter argument of yes but they're not really women they're actually robots and you could they're metaphors and you could extend that being like yeah and the robots were made by men but like let's let's not go down that road it's it's women and they're awesome and fabulous and they (laughs) They get <laughs> yeah, women and minorities crucially as well. Like again, in Westworld, it's it's women and like the Native American robots. In the girl with all the gifts, it's a young black girl. To you know, in in Ex Machina, it's a woman as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's I, not subtle. And I mean, that's a message that's not just um you know front and center in the screen. It was the same behind the scenes as well. Like you mentioned before, the editor was Margaret Sixel, who is the um also the wife of George Miller. Interestingly, when he was kind of um part of his reason for picking her to edit it, now she has worked on like all of his other films before including I think Happy Feet but he picked her specifically because she hadn't worked on an action movie before and he thought that this means she won't cut it like an action movie which is great because that's another issue I think with a lot of contemporary action movies um, Taken 3 I think being one of the most infamous examples of action movies just overcutting and trying to force the action <laughs> from the cut itself as opposed to there be as opposed to it just being like the skill of the actors and the stuntsmen um and then you also had like women behind the scenes for example uh the costume designer um Jenny Beaven and it, I think it's so gas when you look her up her um Oscar win and she's literally like she looks like she was inspired by Mad Max and also that she did not get <laughs> She's wearing oh, a black yeah. leather jacket. Oh, yeah, she up to the Oscars and something absolutely outrageous. Like, black <laughs> leather jacket, red scarf, and, like, baggy black pants. Yeah. Like, yeah. she does not give a <laughs> shit. It was actually quite hilarious. Um, but, yeah, the fact that he had so many kind of women involved on his crew as well, kind of, I think that that's um, really important as well. Um, and even the fact that, you know, Fur- Furiosa, uh, Furiosa, rather, became, like, such an icon since um, that she's going to have her own movie now. I think it's kind of a shame that Charlie's Theron kind of got the shove there. Um, though I think that Anya Taylor-Joy, particularly with how well she's done this year with um, The Queen's Gambit and um, Emma and all of those, I think that she'll do a fantastic job and really help with that whole box office appeal. Um, but just from the other perspective of when I'm looking at Mad Max Fury Road, I just kind of love it as just an entertaining popcorn movie you know and I think that it does like I hadn't really thought about it before but Darren I think that you are right and that it really does kind of 
it, it does tap into that nostalgia because there is just something very simple and straightforward about its story. And even in terms of like the ensemble cast and everything, like you get the, all of those characters right away and you get what what are their kind of deepest heart desires. And you understand this in like a matter of lines or just from like exchanges and glances and stuff like that. And I think that that's really kind of brilliant about it. Um, And then I just love it as like a crafted piece of cinema. I just think that it's absolutely gorgeous. I love, love, love the fact that it like won all of those like technical awards at the Oscars, like sound editing, like production design, costume, hair and makeup, um, because it's just so incredibly like, put together I'm I'm actually shocked even hearing that there were so many cuts because like I I don't when I'm watching it I don't feel like it's over edited or over cut because I feel like I could hit pause at most moments in the movie and basically take that screenshot and put it in a frame because it is just so beautiful and so well composed uh, just on that actually because there's a couple of things to, to think about there but yes to bring it back to, to Sixel who, who really edited it and edited the hell out of it and again you mentioned that she is is married to Miller much in the same way that you had kind of George and Marsha Lucas who were both responsible for Star Wars famously the Star Wars cut was terrible and Marsha basically tightened it up and tightened up all three and is arguably the unsung hero of Star Wars but Sixel um, talked about like the absurdity of the situation where they shot this okay so just in terms of production right there was not a script for mad max Fury road well there was a script but it was largely a series of storyboards similar to uh aleandro jurowski's dune where it was literally just pictures that he doodled with music in the background and occasionally lines and grunts that he would wanted to put in there um and so like actors who read it were like what the hell is this like the the cinematographer john seal was like i don't understand what's going on one of the big tensions in the movie was that like both Charlize theron and tom hardy didn't understand what miller was doing and like Hardy has basically apparently nearly came to blows with him at one point. Theron said that like she tried to trust him, but she couldn't because she trusted other directors in the past. Very famously, uh, Hardy apologized at the Cannes premiere, very publicly said, look, I was wrong in front of the press who didn't even apparently know that there were that many difficulties behind the scenes between him and Miller. It's like, oh, by the way, what do you know? I totally disagreed with him, but I don't anymore now that I've seen the movie. Um, But in terms of like editing and giving... I, I get the impression watching the movie that they don't want to be there either. Or that they're not having a good time. Like they, 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 But they're in yeah. an apocalypse, am I, Andrew. Am I mad? What? They're in an apocalypse. Oh <laughs> yeah, but it's <laughs> world like. like it is 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 that where the kind of weariness of their their uh, performance kind of comes from? Like they, it does. It, like maybe it just works for the movie. And it just happens that it comes from them not wanting to be there. But Well, apparently, um, like, the, neither yeah, of them could stand the other. Apparently, um, Hardy was doing a method acting thing and Theron couldn't stand that. And Theron was not necessarily a particularly generous screen partner from Hardy's perspective either. And again, Hardy's apologized for that. Hardy said that, you know, she needed a more experienced screen partner. And I was not, having just come off, like, The Dark Knight Rises, I'd never anchored a blockbuster before. So now I was I was not ready to be in the position I needed to be. I wasn't mature enough to do what I needed to do there. But in terms of the tension between them, it's worth like Zoe Kravitz has said that sequence that happens early on 
where like where Max tries to take control of the rig, where he shows up with the shotgun that doesn't have any bullets in it, and himself and Furiosa get into a fight on the sand. According to Zoe Kravitz, um, who plays Toast the Knowing, she said that like watching that, watching the actors play that scene was like watching mom and dad working some stuff out basically on set. It felt <laughs> like it was kind of like both of them were very happy to get the relief of like having of working through that together. And in fact, actually, it was noted that one of the main speculations that the movie hasn't produced a sequel is because the two of them did not get on well and that any sequel it, at one point it was suggested there would be two separate sequels one following Furiosa and one following Max um, which again suggests that you know Miller was like I'm not putting those two actors together again um, what I do want to say though actually just to, to bring it back to what what kind of D said there though in terms of like production right so like for each day of shooting, they generated 8 to 20 hours of material. Uh, vehicles traveling at 40 kilometers per hour. Um, it took three months after they stopped shooting just to watch all the footage that they had, let alone trying to assemble it. Um, and in fact, actually, I think Grace mentioned this back on the Scanlon podcast, but it's worth singling out. The fact that D mentioned you could pause Mad Max at any time and get a beautiful still shot. That is in large part because Miller directed cinematographer John Seale, who he talked out of retirement, into framing the movie in center frame. And if you watch it, you'll notice that a lot of the action takes place in the center or the middle of the frame, which is not particularly showy, it's not particularly artsy, it's not particularly elegant. And again, it's one of the things that is demonstrates how much the movie is practical. When you're watching CGI, you can place the camera in impossible positions relative to objects because those objects don't exist. But on practical shooting, you have to shoot around them. And the reason why Miller shot with everything in center frame was because it made editing easier. He didn't have to worry about match cuts. So obviously, if you're cutting to somebody, an object in the bottom left-hand corner of the frame, you need to cut to or from in order to draw the audience's eye. Whereas if everything is always in the center of the frame, the audience is always looking there. And you've got an infinite array of shots that you can cut to or from around that, which is quite striking. And in particular, what Dee said about like, every shot looking beautiful and the fact that most modern action movies are cut frantically there's an editor named vashi and Edomansky, and i will include the link in the show note to this but he basically did an experiment where he took three so he took five movies from the 2010s that all had an equivalent average shot length to mad max free road and he played them all sped up side by side and you watch them and it's amazing because, like, the Bourne Ultimatum is incomprehensible at that speed. And it's actually funny that D mentioned Taken. Taken 3 is incomprehensible when watched at that speed. But you watch Mad Max Fury Road at 12 times its normal speed. And yeah, obviously some of the stuff is disjointed and uneven. But you know what the camera's looking at. You know what it's showing you. It's incredibly well put together. Um, stunningly well put together in terms of kind of technical craft. Um and actually, to bring it back to something else that Dee said there about the, the characters, actually, because you mentioned, like, it's, it is a, an old-fashioned action movie. One of the things I really like about it is how even the smaller characters seem to have a place in the world of the film. So take, for example, uh, Immortan Joe's uh, son, Erectus Erectus. Um, Erectus, he nearly feckin' killed us. Eh, eh, eh. Um, <laughs> but he, he cast Nathan Jones, who's not like a great actor, who's, who's popped up in a bunch of stuff. He is not a great actor, but you watch Fury Road and like Rictus doesn't necessarily get a lot of dialogue. Nobody in the movie gets a lot of dialogue, but you see enough of him that you can kind of understand where he's coming from. You know that he's a son who's looking for respect from his father, um, who's like basically an overgrown baby. 
you get a sense of who he is and what he wants. Take the Doof Warrior, who appears on screen in, what, three or four scenes at most, but becomes this kind of, like, iconic mimetic character because he's so distinct. He's something that, like, you look at him and you understand immediately how he works, which is, is like, I would argue, great storytelling. Andrew looks like he doesn't mm-hmm. believe any of this. No, like, I love I love the Doof Warrior. A point about, like, Rick, Rick just feeling like, like, like a... Um... A giant dangerous baby <laughs> well I, I didn't like i just didn't i didn't find um hardly any character in the movie compelling or, or want to kind of um, <laughs> uh, you know follow them on their journey um further or learn more about them they figured like i've i've, I've felt like i i like you're right with Rictus, we get him. <laughs> like we don't need anything further. Um, like I'm not wondering, kind of. Does Rictus enjoy the violin? Rictus? Yeah. Does Rictus enjoy playing violin on weekends? Or, yeah, yeah. Can we see more Rictus, please? And just does he like... coach an under eight war pups football team? You know. Probably. <laughs> what um, about, what about yeah. the flame guitarist? I want to know his backstory. Yeah. The Doof Warrior. The Doof Warrior. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. No, I I will give I'll give the Doof Warrior that. <laughs> I, 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 like I I um I I love the the red onesie. <laughs> um, the guitar with the uh, flames coming out of it, which is a real chords. thing, by the way. It was it a is, it is, the yeah. fact that he's supposed to be wearing a mask made from like his dead mother's face or something. <laughs> but I think like that's that's kind of a real testament to just the the effort put into visual storytelling in this. I think yeah. there is, and I mean, obviously, a lot of that is attributable to the actors' work too. But the um. The film really sets it up beautifully, I think, because without explicitly going into detail about anything, it manages to convey completely everything you need to know about the characters. And one of my personal favorites and probably one of the best uses of that center framing in the film is at the very beginning when uh, Furiosa goes off road and Immortan kind of goes running through his lair to find that all the wives are gone. And when he goes, it like sort of charges up to, to Miss Giddy to ask where they've gone. The combination of her saying like she didn't take them, uh, they begged her to go. And then on the wall behind her kind of framed right in the center is it's I can't remember if it's we are not things or if it's, it is. We are not things. Yeah, it's we are not things. The world one is above things. the door. Yeah, yeah exactly. But even something as simple as that, where you can see that like the wives have a voice before they're ever on screen and they're explicitly portrayed as having agency in their decision it wasn't a case that they were kidnapped or they were taken as some sort of bargaining tool um and i think the film makes that very clear before you ever actually see them and that's just something so small and yet so effective and it works so well in the context of the film and i remember reading somewhere as well that i think uh george miller when he was kind of conceptualizing the storyline as well had realized on his own that he needed well, I'm not sure if maybe he was already considering the character of Furiosa as a woman, but he said that like the dynamic if the wives had gone with Max, for instance, was completely different because there was that kind of, it, it would basically be that idea of taking the wives as chattel from another man, whereas if they go with Furiosa, it's a different story altogether. Were, were all of them there uh, uh, kind of by, by their, it seems like it was definitely not one of their ideas. Um <laughs> Like I, 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 as in, as in, the, the, Cheeto the, the fragile. 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Seems like it was. It was. She was kind of outvoted. <laughs> like, just move uh, as a collective. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but she. She's yeah, also uh, clearly portrayed as the youngest one and the one who's the most yeah. vulnerable and likely to have been gaslit and psychologically abused into not seeing the. Out- the situation is, but I think it's oh, it's 100%. it's also probably important that she has that moment where she wants to go back because I think that's a very human emotion, especially following the trauma they've just been through with Angara dying, where they're just like, oh my god, this is a terrible idea. Of course, somebody's going to break down and crack up and be like, no, wait, we should go back. Yeah. I mean, we had a pool, we had unlimited milk. I mean, it was just it was paradise, really. Yeah, they they do manage to spill some of that milk on on the on the sand. And this is why Andrew really hates (laughs) for wasted milk, or because it's going to absolutely smell rank. (laughs) I I don't hate this movie. I I do feel like the 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 um that graffiti now they have to live there. (laughs) (laughs) And and Uh, and it's important to remember. It's a mantra, Andrew. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, now they have to confront the graffiti every they, day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the waste—the waste of milk is nothing compared to the waste of water in this movie. I mean, like, <laughs> it's—it's it's unbelievable. Like the whole idea is that Morton Joe controls the water and therefore it controls all the people, and then he distributes it in the most inefficient way. Yeah. And then the women are just like washing themselves off because they got a bit of dust on and then they leave the water running while like freaking Max and Furiosa are fighting. Oh my God, that's so painful. Like just all that water running into the desert and you're like, for God's sake, people. I know for visual aesthetics, it it looks powerful, but I was just like, it distracted me in those scenes. I feel like they're... They're they're part of the problem too. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> this is the hot take from Andrew. Wait, yeah, un- wait until I, we I get think, to talking about. I think their children will be um, as warlords. bad. Yeah. Um, but I think that also is like I remember seeing someone on on Twitter talking about how they went to see this film with a friend, and their friend was like, "Why would you like get basically your entire crew or, or village of people or whatever, and get all get into your cars and go out on this like massive." search mission to try and find all these people and waste all of these resources and so on and somebody is just like could it be a metaphor um, I, <laughs> hey 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 i think the people leader had a very solid point nobody was thinking about the deficit in perhaps the line that has aged the best in the movie the moment mm-hmm. where the people leader is like have you thought about the deficit as the apocalypse happens around him and um, now we are stuck in a quagmire <laughs> yeah what I will Nobody say. Nobody cares about the deficit anymore, by the way. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. um, what I will say, actually, um, just to bring it back to, I think, what Andrew and Dee were talking about there in terms of silence and dialogue, it's worth noting that, yeah, okay, there, there's not a lot of kind of exposition here. And in fact, actually, Miller has explicitly said that, like, when he was making the movie, what he wanted to do was make a silent movie with sound. And actually, like, one of the more interesting comparisons I've seen, and something that really clicked for me when I watched the Black and Chrome version, which, to be clear, is an inferior version of the movie. I'm glad that I watched it out of curiosity, but I would not recommend doing it unless you are curious. Um, but one is it of the things also in the 250. I'm just trying to remember. Oh I no, feel like it was. They're not separate. They're not. Some point. They're the IMDb. I don't think counts the two of them separately. I um, thought I saw both in it at one point. But anyway, sorry. That'd be great. We can talk about it twice. Unfortunately, it was not. <laughs> um, but um, the the one thing that the Black and Chrome really reinforces is how much of it 
is owed to silent cinema. And particularly when you watch scenes like, say, the, the wonderful sequence where Nux and kind of Max wrestle with the women, uh, again, that sequence with the shotgun, where you have the pulling of the chain and the yanking and the falling and the tripping and the tripwire and the bouncing. All that stuff feels very much like it's from a Buster Keaton kind of silent comedy. And like the bit, like the basic plot of the movie as well is basically the plot of the general. It's a long drive having stolen something going one way. And then when you get there, it's a long drive back in the reverse direction, heading pretty much in a straight line. And I kind of, I find it fascinating that you have a movie released in 2015, which like connects arguably to the true roots of cinema. And arguably this goes back to, and I think Grace mentioned there, like the feminism of the movie and its kind of emphasis on female action heroes and female perspectives. It's like worth noting that, and I think again, Grace may have attended this talk as well. The Dublin Feminist Film Festival a couple of years ago did a talk on women in silent cinema. And like a century before Mad Max 3 Road was released, like you had this boom in kind of women who were directing movies, starring in movies and making action movies. So like Mary Fuller was starring in the active life of Dolly of the Dailies. Grace Kennard appeared in Lucille Love, the girl of mystery, which was billed as the most sensational series of pictures ever produced. Airplanes, lions, tigers, cannibals, shipwrecks. Um, and also you had like Pearl White starring in The Perils of Pauline. Um, and you had Helen Holmes in The Hazard of Helen, um, which, you know, these were long form kind of serials. And they got, obviously, as time went on, women got kind of squeezed out of Hollywood as the studio Wait, system. Kind um, of... Betty White was doing all those <laughs> um, action movies. Yeah. Right? yeah, back in the day, back in her, back in her. No, that's not. I wasn't going to say back in her prime. She is in her prime. We're all in Becky in Betty White's prime, to be fair. <laughs> but um but I, I do find it interesting that, like, for all that it is a very modern, very 21st century movie, it is also, like, a cinematic throwback. It is, like, the pure and distilled essence of action cinema. And, like, again, I'm not... Well, I am being artsy and pretentious, um, but we'll, we'll allow it. No. Or, I never... No. Darren, never, never happens. Never artsy and pretentious. But I kind of joked at the start there that it is a franchise film that is like tied to the like 1920s French idea of pure cinema. You know, the kind of surrealist idea that like cinema as an art form needs to be about more than just dialogue or translating like images from the stage or kind of like stuff that can be read in books. Cinema has to be something that can only happen on screen. And it's been argued, you know, again, by very pretentious people, possibly including myself, that like Mad Max Fury Road is a distillation of that idea in that it is it is pure cinema. And again, like it's kind of funny that we talk about this because like when people say pure cinema, you have this idea of kind of like elitist black and white Eastern European kind of films about like death and melancholy and enchlemet. Uh, but like the I love the idea that Mad Max Fury Road a movie about driving really fast in one direction and then driving really fast in the opposite direction is perhaps like as pure an expression of cinema as you can find. Or am I reaching? I just thought of them driving really fast to one direction. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, I, I 100% agree. And that's why I talked, to, that's why I was talking about as a popcorn movie. Yeah. Like it's just a really, really fun movie. Yeah. Movie kind of movie. <laughs> a movie movie. Um, no, a, a movie that moves, as it were. Um, in terms of kind of the, the, like the scale of production here, because again, all of this stuff was done physically. 
88 vehicles uh, built for the movie, uh, but 150 actually because they had to blow up some copies of it as well. Um, all the stuff that you see works. Like those pole sequences are designed, like those are actually working. That sequence where Tom Hardy is on the pole and he goes up and the truck explodes behind him. <laughs> I had assumed that must have been green screen. Obviously, they really blew up the truck and Tom Hardy really went up. But I assumed that they superimposed those two sequences together. But no, apparently they actually literally timed it. So that like Tom Hardy went past again, very Buster Keaton style around the camera as the truck behind him explodes. Like it is absolutely insane that this movie got made. I mean, yeah. There was, there was an article in I think io9 not long after it came out and the the title of the article is literally like do you realize this film is a miracle <laughs> and I think there was some reference to um you know kind of the troubled production like you were saying earlier but also things like that like you know how did people not die making this um they they roped in like you know circus performers and acrobats in order to do the stunts they blew up like right there they were in real moving cars um and then on top of it all, you're like, how, considering the chaotic nature of production, do they actually hammer out a coherent story with good performances and and themes that 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 resonate with an audience? Like it's the the whole idea of all of those pieces coming together is just so unheard of in a a film industry that tends to be so risk averse and so kind of by the numbers and formulaic and stuff. And then you had this gigantic breath of fresh air that just felt like it was an accident. <laughs> I describe it more as like an adrenaline rush than a breath of fresh air because it's just like zip and you're like woo. Um, like, is it worth very quickly just talking because we kind of alluded to the insanity around the development of Mad Max Fury Road, but basically just to put it all in context. So after Thunderdome, which had been financially successful and which had generated enough interest that Miller could, if he wanted, make a sequel to it, he said, nah, I want to go off and I want to make like the we the Witches of Eastwick and I want to make Happy Feet and I want to make Babe. I want to kind of broaden my range. And then it was in 1998 when he apparently had this epiphany while walking. And it's great that he could actually pinpoint it when he was Ross walking across a crosswalk in Los Angeles he had this idea of what if the movie is just one long car chase but it's people and Grace pointed this out a moment ago that was the moment at which Furiosa came to him as well because if it's a car chase for people it's a very different dynamic if it's a woman as compared to a man so he managed to convince Warner Brothers to sign off on the idea and he went to Namibia um, and he went with uh, Mel Gibson at the time back in 2001 when they were getting ready to shoot. Then September the 11th happened. And actually, it's terrifying. It's horrible when you read it because you have like his production assistant going. I think the moment I realized that it wasn't going to happen in 2003 was the moment Mel Gibson's wife rang me up and asked how many Muslims there were in Namibia. That was the point <laughs> at which I said this movie's not getting made. Um, so he went away and eventually he managed to convince Warner Brothers to let him try again back in 2012. Um, Warner Brothers said yes and he recast the role with Tom Hardy again fresh off The Dark Knight Rises and he was like okay we're going to make this we're going to head over apparently uh, Charlize Theron had been uh, Furiosa pretty much from day one um, there had been some suggestion of Uma Thurman but apparently Theron was the perfect candidate from the start uh, she had grown up I think watching Mad Max movies because apparently they're very popular in South Africa so they went to they're going to shoot in Queensland 
apparently the big desert, you know, obviously perfect location for it. But it rained and all of a sudden all these plants started cropping up all over the desert in Queensland. And they're like, damn it, we can't actually shoot the movie here. So they moved back over to Namibia. And then while they were shooting there, there was a battle basically taking place at Warner Brothers um, where there was kind of like a fight over who was going to end up kind of succeeding. I think it was Jeff Rubinov was basically um, was basically on his way out and was told told them that, look, if you don't have this movie shot by the 8th of December, um, it's it's not going to happen. Whatever you have by 8th of December is basically done. Um, And so. They didn't manage to get it done. They shot as much as they could, but they didn't shoot any of the scenes at the Citadel. Um, So they didn't have a beginning and they didn't have an ending to the movie when they were called back to Hollywood. Basically, Rubinov was fired. He was replaced with Kevin Tashira. Tashira basically said, okay, look, fine. I will let you go off and make shoot the start and shoot the end of this movie that you have but for a while it looked like they were going to have to patch it together with voiceovers that the movie was going to be nothing but the chase with none of the appearance none of the sequences at the start or at the end so yeah it's it's staggering that it got made at all the amount of chaos involved in kind of getting it made and again it's notable i think we talked about this when we talked about uh, clockwork orange again warner brothers trusting a filmmaker when you probably wouldn't like when, when, you know, when you probably go, nah, this seems a bit risky. Let's just kind of write it off or let's uh, let's not have them travel around the world and build actual practical cars. Um, we can do it all via CGI anyway. It's again. Well, do, do movies just get made because there's tax breaks, though? <laughs> like, like, why? Why would anyone ever make a, 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 a movie like because it's so unlikely to, you know, make any money out of it? I know. Um, That's like saying, why do they keep churning out all of these uh, franchises and blockbusters? And it's like, well, uh, they make money. You know, that's that's how capitalism yeah, works. It yeah. funds the that makes money. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 kind of it's it's difficult because everybody wants to see a great movie, but nobody wants to go. Um, there's 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 far too many few people want to go see it when when it gets made. Yeah. That was not a problem right. this film had, though, at least. <laughs> no. They, they Imagine an alternate universe where it's and everybody has problems in China. No, <laughs> Unless I mean, you've like, explicitly, um, like, you know, re- retrofit your movie with some completely awful Chinese pandering so that they don't hate it in China because you've got to chase those sweet capitalism dollars. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, particularly around the time of Fury Road, where you had was a Transformers 4 Age of Extinction, which is a movie like the Transformers movie series is about how the government is corrupt and how it will fail absolutely everybody. And how like when the government shows up in Mark Wahlberg's backyard, he says in his thick Boston accent, we got a saying about messing with people from Texas. Don't. Um, but but as soon as those movies go to Hong Kong. All of a sudden, they're about how wonderfully efficient the government is and how if Autobots were to attack the People's Republic of China, they would be dealt with swiftly and efficiently. And like, there would be no civilian... Do with those Autobots the way they do with like democracy. (laughs) Um... Swiftly and efficiently and without any recourse. Um... Can, Can we show you to these concentration camps we just happen to have already prepared? Yeah. Um, but it is worth, like in terms of size of production, one thousand seven hundred people working on the movie at its height. Um, Dang. Yeah, one hundred. James Cameron somewhere is just creaming himself. <laughs> one hundred and fifty <laughs> hand-built details, multiple uh, vehicles, multiple digital cameras, shooting over one hundred twenty days, yielding four hundred hours of footage. Cirque du Soleil acrobats working on the Sunni pole vaults. 
remote control drivers allowing actors to look like they're steering the vehicles. At one point, the stunt crew used rigging imported from the Sydney and Beijing Olympic opening ceremonies so that they could have people move in and out of shot as needed. Again, the level of like care and craft that went into this is simply staggering and kind of dizzying. And the fact that anything came out of it that was coherent at all is is dazzling to me. Um in terms of, of the film's kind of cultural legacy, it is probably worth pointing out, I think, and I think Dee mentioned this, the amount of women who worked on this behind the scenes, but not just obviously working in editing, working in costuming, um, and that sort of stuff. Apparently, he consulted with Eve Ensler, who wrote the vagina monologues, and he basically had her review the script uh, in order to make sure that it's handling of... Um, the script that didn't exist. <laughs> the script that didn't exist, yes. Um, Here, re- review these loose thoughts that I have in a couple of storyboards. Yeah. Um, you sh- show show showed her some drawings of vagina dentata. <laughs> so, like, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> it's a good movie, right? Yeah, right there. Um, <laughs> but uh, well, she she apparently went and she workshopped with the actors, and the actors were all apparently very thankful for that because the script didn't make any sense otherwise. Um, but again, it it's kind of again speaks to how concerned Miller was with kind of like making sure that these things were done right as well. Um, and again, things like say Theron. Like originally Furiosa was supposed to have, and again, this is one of the things where it's like how different the movie would have been. Originally Furiosa was conceived as a Barbarella type character. Um, yeah, <laughs> this and, is and, fine. Uh, that's that's because of Thunderdome. Yeah, yeah. They were yep. still working off that. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say that was the influence there. Um, and she she came up with the idea of cutting her hair herself because the idea was that it, she's working near that machinery. It would have taken her scalp off at one point, so she came up with the it idea. It already of took her, hair. her arm off. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so like that sort of stuff going on there as well. And like, again, just the level of attention of detail. And by the way, in terms of like women led action movie, it's worth singling out that it arrived the same month as Taylor Swift's video for Bad Blood, actually, as well. Oh, my similarly... God, what a cultural moment. <laughs> I know what a time it was, apparently, in terms of like blockbusters starring kind of women and based around women, because obviously you had The Force Awakens as well, as Grace pointed out, arriving in December, which was another we're taking a franchise and we're making the central character a woman. And again, this is where it's it's worth like mentioning like some of the back, not baggage that comes with Fury Road, but baggage that attached itself retroactively to Fury Road, because I mentioned Fury Road being a film of the moment and a film that is arguably important in the context of the 2010s and in understanding pop culture in the 2010s. It was, as far as I am aware, uh, and I might be wrong here, um, but it was the first time that you started seeing MRAs pushing back against franchise adaptations that place an emphasis on female characters. Um, I think, yeah, I'd actually forgotten all of that, Jesus. Yeah, I'm just no, remembering this... now, um, because it seems so so quaint, probably by today's <laughs> um, uh, what you call it by today's standards. I think it is probably the first time I remember being conscious of there being kind of a wider orchestrated backlash. It may not be the first time it actually happened, but I think in terms of it sort of breaking through into the mainstream, as it were, um, that's the first time I remember hearing about something like that. And then, of course, it all just kept kicking up a notch when Star Wars came out and Ghostbusters the following year. 
Well, no, that, that's it. Is that like, again, this is kind of like the rumblings of things that will happen later on. And again, we kind of talk about it being a 2015 movie perfectly. Like in 2015, you had this thing happening with franchises where women were being placed front and center and you were getting a little bit of pushback against it. So you got this, you know, backlash that was organized by this kind of MRA website. I think it's We, we Are Kings or Return of Kings or whatever it was, which is basically about men reclaiming their place in society or, or some sort of nonsense along those lines. Lines. yes because they famously lost it yeah in in the apocalypse i i don't know it yeah it makes no sense whatsoever but the the thing is that so, like is it is it is it is it is it that welcoming it's like all men <laughs> <laughs> not just kind of mediocre white men um i or... I, I don't know that they put that much thought into it at that stage yet. I don't think they'd figured that part of it out. But like again, uh, I'm if- pretty sure if a trans man rocked up, he would not get the the response that uh, that that you might expect. But again, it's it's kind of interesting because you see like the simmering tension in 2015. So like you see a little bit of backlash to Fury Road, and everybody is like, ha. Look at those. Look at it. It's silly. Isn't it silly? That's never going to catch on. Nobody's going to take this stuff seriously at any point whatsoever. And then you have a little bit of it happening with like The Force Awakens, where people start calling Rey a Mary Sue, despite the fact that she's just doing what Luke did back in the original Skywalker. Sorry, the original Star Wars. But because she's a woman, suddenly she is a Mary Sue. Um, and then you have like things like, say, what was happening in Doctor Who, where you were having like the push towards recognizing female characters as equivalent to the narrative role of the Doctor. And all of a sudden, like his companion, like Clara Oswald, and you have fans online going, oh, it's not Doctor Who anymore. It's Clara Who uh, around about 2015 as well. And all the time, everybody's like, oh, this is just this is going to go away if you just ignore it. It's nothing. It's like it's just the last gasp of this sort of like, you know, sort of like backlash or kind of, you know, fans. It, cre- it creates another problem, though. Um, in that, like, if you don't like these movies, <laughs> then you're the worst. You know, <laughs> kind of that, that, like, like some some of the movies that that you've mentioned. There's a real problem for people to kind of not like them and also hate the patriarch. Hate <laughs> both like, of these you things. Know, yeah, that, that that it's kind of it's kind of like um feel like um i guess for, for is a sense in which kind of the um to to challenge the 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 patriarchy is kind of is is a necessary thing that films need to do but that it's not like sufficient for them to be a good movie i guess um and the, that that's a kind of a difficult kind of perspective to have because oh, yeah. it seems like you don't like the movie. The, the, yeah. the, the, it, it, it seems that you don't like what the movie represents. And you, you like, where, whereas it, you, I guess for me anyway, I, 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 I do like what the movie represents, but I think it does it really badly. <laughs> um, like, like I, 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 I the, it's one of those things where it's like, Difficult to make a an anti-war um, oh, war movie without glorifying war, is it? Yeah, yeah. Like I, I don't, I, I, I don't think there's really that much um, kind of like there. There is a kind of a sense at the beginning that's um, that that there is something that there is something um, better and hopeful about where they're going, and. I think we just get more people with guns <laughs> killing people, and you know, 
that that that's and and that, that, like there is no problem in the movie that isn't solved by killing someone. You know what I mean? I think I think they do try to challenge that though. Like when they um when they get out into the desert and they meet the the Vuvalini and one of them is just one of them is speaking to the dag and she says something like you know I I've shot everyone I've ever met out here or something and then she pushes back and says I thought you were above all of that and I think it's kind of an like for me that's that's kind of an interesting dichotomy because on the one hand you have the ideal of being above it like morally above it and saying this is unacceptable and we can't go around killing each other and then there's kind of the more realistic well this is the world as it is and we can't pretend that if we go out and wave like peace flags that people aren't going to just mow us down for sport so I think the film does make some effort to push back against that, but like it's, yeah, it's still it's still a, a post-industrial age when people are still engaged in tribal warfare. So I don't know if you want to read a deeper significance into the human condition in that. It just seemed very, very kind of like maybe deservedly so, but very kind of um, mean spirited, like that that the. the, the um... That like I, I and and coming to the end of the movie, like I, I just didn't feel like this, <laughs> this, this isn't this isn't going anywhere. Like they, these these people are going to die, just the same. <laughs> um, they're like all of these people are are going to starve to death. Um, they, if they like... don't die from the obvious birth defects they have from radiation poisoning. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, the problem yeah. is they're addicted to water, Andrew. They've let themselves become like, addicted to water. Yeah, it's a yeah. terrible thing. Well, it feels like when 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 they run out of bullets from Bullet Town, uh, <laughs> they'll just drop rocks on each other, and um, and like I don't I don't think like I... there 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 isn't I don't I don't get the the sense in which kind of um, things are better. Like I I I understand as a metaphor how it works, but in the story of the movie, <laughs> it, it's 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 kind of doesn't really inspire me. You know what I mean? Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, yeah, it's it's interesting because, I mean, to be honest, I didn't think about it that much. I just thought it was really awesome. Oh, it absolutely is. But I mean, I suppose part of, to address part of what you're saying, when it comes to these post-apocalyptic movies, I feel like there are two kind of main resolutions right um so there's the resolution of the world is ended so we'll find like a new world and there'll be this better idyllic place so you'd see that in the ends of endings of say thunderdome or Waterworld, to give another example where they find their island and they live and everything and then the other alternative ending is no we're stuck in this world but we can make it a better place which I think is the one that like Mad Max Fury Road opts for. And like, I'm struggling to kind of think of examples now. Um, But even like Children of Men say would go for the other one because she like, you know, it ends with her like getting away and she goes off. Uh, we don't see where she ultimately ends up, but the idea is that like, it's something better. I suppose Soul could be an example <laughs> to bring it back to a previous one. The fact that he goes back to Earth and yeah. it's all about like, he's redeemed now and he's going to make it a better place for himself through him. So I suppose it just ma like matters if you buy into that or not. I did because I thought like, look, these characters have been on this 
like incredible journey and particularly for Charlie's Theron story like all of the like no actually no for all the women like they all went through all this trauma and all of this loss and everything and they've grown and they've kind of become like better like all-rounded people as a result and they know what they're doing and they'll know how to rule and they will be fair and they'll do it as a collective like a government if you will (laughs) (laughs) but uh no I I did feel hope by the end of it maybe I'm just a sucker for a happy ending um but that's also why I wouldn't really want to see a sequel to this so it's interesting Darren that you were saying that if they were to do a follow-up they'd probably follow like Max and Furiosa separately and I know that the Furiosa movie anyway is going to be an origin story so maybe that doesn't really matter but I I don't think I'd really want to see what happens next because that might taint that because they are going to make mistakes or they might just the whole thing up and I Mm -hmm. don't think it'd be realistic for Max to go back to them I think that he would just move on into the wasteland Um, as the first history man dictates at the end Uh, it kind of like it I found I found it reminding me of um there's a play one man two governors and there there's is a um <laughs> is this al murray was al murray in this i remember no no the um this is why i sometimes defend james corden oh okay. cuz i do not like james corden <laughs> but i've oh, seen that's a segue i love that we found so something annoying. the entire podcast can agree on <laughs> yeah <laughs> more but, unifying but, than mad max free road <laughs> it was it was it was it, it it was in the it was in the English National Theatre, and there was like a speech in in it, um, and I think it's set in 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 like the the fifties. Uh, the um, character is saying like how like some sometime soon things are going to be different in this country. Um, uh, there there'll be a woman prime minister, and she's going to end all wars and like. Um, you know, uh, bring 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 an end to inequality, and she kind of like it goes through this whole description of everything that like Margaret Thatcher didn't do, <laughs> um, and and the whole kind of idea of kind of commodifying uh, girl power like happened in the kind of uh, late nineties when when with the Spice when Girls, George Miller was like considering making this movie just makes me feel very cynical about the whole thing. This is very similar to, is it Jerry Halliwell and Victoria Beckham claiming that like Margaret Thatcher was the first Spice Girl. And she is it, was the, the real scary Spice. Yeah, was, was it Eric Andre's observation? Would you say that she was using girl power when she crossed the mining unions? Um, but <laughs> what I will say to bring it back to Andrew's question of hope. And again, this is the thing where I think obviously, you know, it's a big allegory and the idea of dreaming and the idea of dream logic and metaphor here. And again, This is the thing where I want to be careful when I do this because Miller himself has made this comparison and Miller is an Australian, but Miller is a white Australian. So I'm not entirely sure how comfortable this is, but he's tied this idea of Max to the Aboriginal concept of like dream time and the idea that like there's this ethereal dream space that kind of happens. And like through the film as well, you see that metaphorically with Max where he's haunted by these visions, but these visions aren't just about like guilt and shame. They serve a practical purpose in that, like he literally blocks an arrow at the climax Chekhov's forehead clasp, you know, which is my favorite thing. Chekhov's kind of like forehead slap, which is kind of very much kind of stops the, the arrow in time. But in terms of the dream logic of the movie, where I think the redemption lies and where I think it's vitally important and where I think I find the film 
Like Andrew described as mean spirited and cynical. And like it is very rough, particularly at the start, like particularly at the sequence where you have Nox and Max like fighting with Furiosa and the women like when they've stopped to kind of like remove the chastity belts. That sequence is very much like, oh, it's men versus women. It's people fighting in the wreckage of society. Nobody's going to get along. Nobody's going to partner and ally together. And then obviously over the course of the film, they do. And again, this is the thing where I think, you know, you mentioned this joke about it being, you know, Miller's 1990s version of feminism, girl power, commodification, Spice Girl stuff. But I think that there is a genuine intersectional message there in that, like, Max is in it for himself originally. Himself and Furiosa spend a large part of the movie initially trying to kill each other because they're each trying to pursue their own freedom separately. And then when they team up together and when they're willing to sacrifice for one another, when they're willing to risk for one another to accomplish their goal together, they become a team. But it's the character of Nux. Nux is the character where I think the movie's kind of like heart is on its sleeve. Because Nux is this, again, played by, and again, wonderful performance from Nicholas Holt. I think, you know, we talked about Theron. Theron gives it a barnstorming performance. I think Hardy is great here as well. I think Holt is somewhat underappreciated. And the reason for that is that Nux is this young man who was bought into this culture of literal toxic masculinity in that, like, it is literally killing him. He has his tumors named Larry and Barry. He's going to die. He's internalized everything that he's been taught about the way in which Immortan Joe runs the world, and he's convinced that there's no better way for it to be, and that if he sacrifices himself for Immortan Joe, he's dying for a good cause, and he's helping oppress women because they're property, and he's learned that from a young age and it's been instilled in him. And over the course of the movie, people repeatedly take chances on Nux. Uh, when he's in the cockpit after he's tried to strangle Furiosa, they have him at gunpoint and they try to kill him. And they say, no, don't. We, we promised that we wouldn't kill him. We wouldn't shoot him. Even though there's perfectly good reason to do so because he literally just tried to murder them and he's trying to return them to the monster who's keeping them as sex slaves. But they don't kill him. They cast him out and he comes back and he comes back again. And they find him later on kind of cowering up in the kind of turret where, you know, after he's failed and kind of crying to himself because he's never going to have the death that he wants. And instead of punishing him, instead of killing him, they rehabilitate him. He finds himself separated, taken out of that environment where he was raised, you know, literally toxic to the point where he needs more blood, from fresh blood from a universal donor in order to keep moving because the environment he's in is so toxic because radiation is a metaphor. He becomes a better person. He learns to sacrifice himself for a cause that is worth sacrificing himself, that he chooses to sacrifice. He doesn't seek at the end to be witnessed or validated by a Morton Joe, the man who barely glimpsed at him. He was scanning the horizon! He instead wants to be witnessed by somebody that he actually cares about and who actually cares about him in return. And I find that's heartening. For all the cynicism in the movie, for all the darkness in the movie, for all the bleakness in the movie, the idea that Nux's soul is worth saving, that this one petty henchman character who has grown up in this environment who's never questioned the world as it's been taught to him that he can be saved and is worth saving i find i like i i find that really moving at the heart of kind of mad max rewrote i think yeah i'd 100 percent agree i'm really glad actually we're talking about nooks the character because he was one i really did want to kind of discuss um 
I, I don't think Mad Max Fury Road would be the same without him. I think that he was a key component and I think that Nicholas Holt's performance is brilliant. Um, yeah. I've been a fan of that actor for years and years anyway, even from when he did like About a Boy and then Skins for a while. I think that he's a really um, brilliant and very underrated actor. And I think he brings a lot of nuance to the role of Nux because I mean... He is the character that kind of, I mean, all of the characters undergo some kind of like development yeah. and there are kind of tweaks, but I mean, their ultimate kind of goal never really changes all that much. Whereas Nux's kind yeah. of objective in life, it he does a complete 180 degree turn. And I mean, much like the truck that, that he drives, huh? huh? <laughs> Sorry. But like whether whether you buy into that or not, like how quickly that actually happens, like you kind of have to forgive the movie a little. It does get a little Hollywood in that regard. Um, but whether you believe in it or not, I think that Nicholas Holt really kind of makes you believe in it through his um, performance, that kind of, you know, severe change in his like character and everything. And I have to say, like, and I'm not the only one who has said this. I've spoken to fellow like fans of this movie. When Nux dies, like I've such a lump in my throat. I really, <laughs> really and and every single Did you time name it Larry I'm... or Barry? <laughs> um but every time I watch this movie and that scene is coming up, I keep on hoping. And again, that's why I think that there's a lot of nostalgia surrounding this movie because there's so there's so many famous movie deaths and in your head, you imagine it playing out <laughs> but like in a different way where the character survives. And I still get that with Nooks because I think that like he deserved to be with Riley Kyo with Elvis Presley's <laughs> granddaughter. He deserved it. He earned that. Um, but I mean, it was just so, yeah, it was just so beautiful, the sacrifice. And of course, he's now like, you know, witness me is like such an iconic line. And that's another thing I love about the movie actually is how memeable and how like you yeah. quote from it and people will recognize it immediately. But Nux is amazing yeah. in summary. Yeah, I think he's the nuts and bolts of why it works so well. Sorry, Andrew, <laughs> cut you off. No, I was going to say when when you see when you see like the look on Larry and Barry's face as the car is about to explode. We were not uh, consulted on this. Yes, Smiley's to sad faces. (laughs) (laughs) This wasn't part of the deal, Nux. Um, Sorry, Grace. um, What are your thoughts on this in terms of kind of like the the movie and kind of its outlook and and kind of whether it's optimistic or cynical or realist? Yeah, well, I suppose I I was going to say, I don't think the movie is cynical or or nihilistic at all. Like, it's it's interesting because like I do, I I really like Nux as a character, but I certainly wouldn't consider him the only kind of emotional component of the piece. I think there's a lot of emotion in this. It's just kind of repressed, but he's probably the most um, visible representative of what happens when you are so beaten down um, by a society that it kind of strips all the humanity out of you. And I think the fact that he, the fact that he bonds or like imprints on Riley Keough's character so quickly is more a reflection of that kind of fundamental need for togetherness and support and affection which is obviously not something that is valued in a patriarchal or capitalistic society because you can't exactly wring monetary value or or dominance out of it um so i think the fact that he comes around so quickly isn't that unusual to me because he's 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 presented as someone who has the mindset of a much younger person than perhaps he is in age terms and somebody who kind of just needs warmth and affection to realize that he's like worthy of something um so like in that sense i would say he probably he's probably the most visible representation of that aspect of the movie but i don't think he's the only kind of like 
uh, emotional component of it, if you will. Like, I think there's a lot of emotion in the bond and the connection between the wives themselves. And even in Furiosa's story, like she's looking for home, she's looking for her tribe, she's looking for family. So that's a very kind of heart-rending journey in and of itself. Like she's, and I think the whole concept of her looking for something that she lost years ago, only to realize that she can't regain it, that it's always just going to be a memory. Like that's a really striking, what you call it, message to take out of it. So, yeah. Just very quickly on, on Furiosa. And again, it's kind of like Dee mentioned there, the mimetic quality of the film. That sequence where Furiosa kind of staggers out into the desert after having that moment of realization that Grace mentions, that there is no paradise, that there is no utopia, that there is no world beyond the one that she's escaped. There's and no green place. There is no green place. Uh, there is a swamp, a dark radioactive swamp populated by crow people. They but hate the crows, don't they? They really do hate the crows, but we'll come back to that in a second. But the sequence, like that moment where um, Theron kind of stumbles out onto the dune and falls to her knees and kind of lets out a kind of a primal guttural scream. Like that is one of like my key. And again, it's a, it's a modern movie. It's a movie I saw in cinemas. And it's kind of weird to think of that is one of the one of the shots that I think of when I think of cinema of her on her knees with like the wind blowing and kind of the scream and just the, the howl into the existential void, apparently shot in a single take. Um, which is, is very, very impressive. Shot at a distance. Miller had no idea what she was going to do. He just told her to like respond to it emotionally, respond to the scene emotionally, and we'll just capture it uh, at a long distance. And actually, I think it was incorporated in, I don't know if people have watched this video, but the 100 Years, 100 Shots uh, video that was put together, oh, yeah. I think, for Toronto, I think in 2016, uh, which is basically just like one shot a year from every year of cinema going from, you know, that shot from Shenant where they cut the eye open through to, you know, stuff from the general, where the train collapses through to like the rotating corridor in Inception and this shot and it is it's one of those moments that I think of like when I close my eyes and I dream of cinema it's like that blue and orange and like just that primal howl and like there are moments where the past four years like my internal state has been Charlize Theron primal howl from Mad Max Fury Road Um, when I hear that howl I think of you know in Lord of the Rings the two ring the sorry the lord of the rings the two rings lord of the rings the two towers you know that very famous shot like anybody who knows their lord of the rings trivia knows this how he kicks the helmet and he did the shot three it was either three or four times and peter jackson told him to do it again and again because he kept on getting the helmet closer and closer to the camera when he kicked it and the fourth time he kicked it and not only did he get the helmet just where he was went to but it was an extra loud howl and it was because Hugo mortensen had broken his toe doing the kick (laughs) and that's what those two are like my go-to cinematic howls so Charlie's Theron like literally sounds like someone has broken a bone in her body it is so like it's such a visceral um powerful emotional moment (laughs) it's a mood (laughs) it absolutely is a mood well again and to bring it back to that kind of mimetic quality because again 2015 the perfect time to arrive to be mean to mimetic and i mean like we'll include links in the show notes to things like the feminist mad max tumblr which is amazing because it sequences from the movie overlaid with like the ryan gosling hey girl um, sort of like mimetic quality. Um, I'll let you rest a gun on my shoulder because I know you're a better shot. Um, it's quite something to behold. But even things like the way in which like gifts from the movie are used, like that's bait or me saying mediocre to Andrew as well. I kind of love that it's... I do feel like a schlanger. <laughs> Who like schlong. Do you like schlong, Andrew? Um... What? <laughs> 
What are you? Do, wait till wait till like the guests have, have gone, Darren. Jeez. All right, making and, people feel uncomfortable. All right. Anyway, but what what is? But yeah, the fact that like despite the fact that it is so thin on dialogue, um, but the dialogue that it has is so expressive and so evocative. And like we mentioned, um, I think we talked about Dune a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, and like how insanely inaccessible like Frank Herbert's and kind of like David Lynch's Dune is, where it's like the Bene Gesserit Gomjabur is part of the Muad'Dib plan for genetic breeding, and the melange must flow. It's like this is a lot of buzzwords you're throwing at me right away. What I really like about Mad Max Fury Road is that like despite how restrained the dialogue is, it's all very evocative. So things like saying like the bullet farm. And it's like, oh, I know what the bullet farm is. It's where you get bullets from. Or, you know, was it the uh, guzzoline? I think they say that in the movie. They, they do maybe say that line of dialogue in the movie, you're right? Yeah, I, do, I felt like it, it, it was too easy to understand. <laughs> uh, you know? Where they call like that, gasoline, that... guzzoline for as oh, well. Oh, yeah. You know, and, like... and the guy who's counting the cost of, of, uh, of everything is literally the people eater. Yeah. Could this be a reference to how individuals are crushed under the weight of certain <laughs> apparatuses of the state yeah um and his giant foot implying that yes he has probably consumed a lot of meat if not cannibalism as well given he is the people eater as well but <laughs> even things like say the use of the term are you a black thumb to refer to are you good with like handling machinery and grease and stuff mm -hmm. like the way in which the language is so evocative i i kind of adore and like again well they made the language part of the world building which i think is really effective and it's not it's not that often that you come across that i think because it's i suppose it's a difficult thing to do well but the idea that you know language would have evolved to have new kind of vernacular for the various things that are relevant in their world um i always another i think good example of it is the expanse and the way like the books and the the tv shows obviously incorporated this um but the books kind of developed language and references and different kind of slang that would reflect the world that the characters live in and i think it's a, a really effective aspect of the world building in Mad Max too that they paid attention to that and there's a sense that they have their own kind of slang terms and and you know, um, shorthand for different things. No, I was just going to quickly say, and it also contains one of the few references in the script to redemption that I didn't completely cringe at because that is used to death. It'd be up there with, <laughs> um, I don't want to survive. I want to live as like just the worst <laughs> lines in movies. Um, but I mean, I think it works so well with Furiosa because we don't need to hear like the whole background behind why she's been redeemed like yeah. very minimal details um that we pull a lot from and we can intuit because again like the fact is she's she's been working as his imperiosa for god knows how long she is implicit and again this is one of the things i think richard brody made the observation or not maybe it wasn't richard brody but he made the observation that like one of the issues one of the things with the film is that like you can imply or infer that like furiosa has been complicit in some of the terrible terrible stuff that like Immortan Joe's done and like you don't need to see it on screen you don't need to see it shown you don't need to talk about it at length you can just understand that like this is how the world works this is what you see of the character and you can kind of intuit it from there and actually what I do find interesting to bring up hopefully she does say I, I, what are you looking I, for I, I redemption redemption yeah I had a dark path I did some <laughs> terrible things well um, I think when she like, she makes a reference to something like you know Oh, now that I drive a war rig, which is kind of, there's an implicit suggestion there, I suppose, that like she's worked her way up through the ranks to become kind of like a trusted lieutenant who stewarded with this massive machine. 
It doesn't feel very implicit, though. <laughs> that, that is, like, most of the problem I had with the movie. But she doesn't have to say, like, oh, like, I, I started out, like, washing his feet and then moved up to being his bodyguard and now I'm allowed to do this kind of thing. Like, it, just, it seems kind of... Um, you know, the, the written it it like a lot of it is 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 kind of shorthand. Yeah. And like the the writing on Max's back at the start when they mark him a universal donor is probably longer than the dialogue in the script, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. I remember, there is one. Um, the use of language can be quite quite telling though in certain ways because there's one that kind of just jumped out at me there. I was going through some old notes in an essay I had written about this film. Um, and there's a the part when they meet the Vuvellini and um, Furiosa and, um, oh Lord, I can't remember her name, the, the, the woman that she hugs. And then she says, um, this is our Furiosa. And the way she says it with this real kind of like familiar, like sort of homely the feeling Valkyrie? like the Valkyrie. The Valkyrie, that's it yeah. like you know this idea that that Furiosa has come home to them and the way it contrasts with like earlier in the film when Ang Harried uses her body to shield Furiosa from being shot by Morton Joe and he just kind of looks at her and screams like that's my child my property and like the different sense of ownership there where one is kind of like a statement of power and dominance and the other one is this sense of togetherness and belonging and and finding a home it's just like the way the little things like that are contrasted in the few lines of dialogue that they have, I think is very powerful. Actually, touching on that, I absolutely love the uh, Vuvellini or Vuvellini, however you pronounce mm-hmm. it. They are so cool. Like, I know. Old grandma's <laughs> kicking ass. How awesome is that? I remember like, having a oh. moment when they appeared and I was like, oh, like just thinking to myself, oh man, imagine if this was like a bunch of old ladies on motorbikes and then it was a bunch <laughs> of old ladies on motorbikes. I was just like, what? Oh my God, What's happening here? And- Oh, it's so cool. If you read um the at uh, the Mad Max Fury Road Maddox review, he starts getting into oh, now they're grandmas, but it turns out they're kick out grandmas, and it's it's just a, it's a very very funny review. He gives Mad Max Fury Road one hundred out of five stars. I advise people to go read it if they haven't already. Um, but I mean, it's interesting because I mean we're still at a point where. There is still a lot of ageism in Hollywood and especially ageism against women. And I'm not even talking about like, you know, very old women, which would be, you know, this case. But like even, you know, how like women over kind of 40 or 50 still struggle like to get work. Or <laughs> and it did. And it did foreshadow um, Halloween, which I think came out, I want to say twenty. 20- 18 or 2019 yeah. I think um which was the Jamie first Lee time. Curtis yeah yeah Jamie Lee Curtis and I think that it still holds the record for like the biggest box office success um to be led by kind of an over um 60 or 65 year old woman um so J- Jamie Lee Curtis has kind of gotten this new status of the kind of cool grandma and I think that they were attempting that really with um Linda Hamilton in Terminator Dark Fate but it didn't quite pick up the way they wanted it to because the movie unfortunately I haven't seen it now but apparently it wasn't very good um I do have to watch it at some point because I'm a general like Terminator fan um but it's just kind of interesting how this movie was incorporating that. it's the second best Terminator 3 I would okay argue. well <laughs> Of the four Terminator 3s that we've had, it's second best. It's not a great bar. (laughs) No, it's not. 
but actually to bring it back to something grace said there about the language because you mentioned the idea of kind of like language evolving over time one of the things i actually really love about this is the sense in which language reflects the way in which societies devolved and particularly the war boys the way in which war boys can barely speak english like where where nux jumps up it's like you traitored him or the moment where kind of his lancer is like if you can't stand up you can't do war um which mm-hmm. i kind of like again like an impertinent child but i think we're about wrapping up I'm, i think we're kind of finishing up here is there anything else anybody wants to talk about anything that we haven't discussed already with regards to the film anything anybody wants to single out bungee guitar and <laughs> the steering wheel flying at the screen oh this the, the, the um, 3d because it was it was originally designed for 3d that really did feel like it was designed <laughs> for 3d yeah. didn't it? yes yes it did even watching it like at home today i was like yep yeah, i remember when 3d was a thing um yeah again was, briefly um like have the guitar go right at them yeah, yeah. Uh, poor doof warrior i hope he's okay apparently he has an entire origin story um that you know miller's hoping to bring to the screen at some point um but what about grace or what about d anything you want to bring up anything we haven't discussed already with regards to the film anything jumping out at either of you um i'm trying to think now <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's not too much inappropriate smoking apart from the huge crater of wreckage that's left behind them. Uh, uh, uh. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. But um, I don't know. Like I remember it's it's interesting, uh, Darren, because you kind of brought up a few of the behind the scenes stories in relation to this. Um, and I do find the development hill the hell history <laughs> behind it absolutely fascinating. The fact that it did manage to get made and it managed to be yeah as incredible as it is but I mean I've always been hesitant to look because like we even have the blu-ray to look at like the kind of behind the scenes videos because I just heard that it was just such a difficult shoot for everyone involved and I did hear that there was a lot of tension on set with Miller between Hardy and Theron and everything and I don't I don't want it to ruin (laughs) it for me because sometimes I find that when you hear about those on set feuds like I remember a really famous example being like when I saw the behind the scenes um uh, video for like West Side Story and it turned out that Natalie Wood <laughs> and your man like didn't get along at all and she just kind of like blanked him I can't remember now that, but the name of the lead actor who plays like Tony and everything I don't remember that <laughs> and now I watch that movie and I'm like I don't believe in the romance anymore <laughs> um, but I was I was pleasantly surprised to hear that it sounds like most of that is kind of they're letting bygones be bygones and it was just the intensity and I mean like shooting in that desert just must have been very insane and um i heard that like people were like getting dehydrated and stuff like that which of course would add to yeah feuding and everything i i think really cool might have gotten hypothermia during one of the night shoots which is not something you expect to be ever be able to say about shooting in a desert so i'm sure i read that somewhere yeah i I know but like most most people wouldn't think you were shooting in you know south uh west africa and you got hypothermia that's not kind of immediately where your brain will go and actually, to, to bring back to what Dee said there about like the trouble production history, I'm really glad. Like, because whenever you hear about films that have trouble genesis and films coming to screen that were very difficult, your immediate response is, "This is probably not going to turn out to be great." I kind of love that, like, this took 17 years to make, and like got shut down three times, and everybody hated each other on the set, and it's a joyous masterpiece somehow. Like against all odds, it kind of restores my faith in. Like the idea of cinema as an art form. It's like, well, I mean, you know, the Snyder Cut of Justice League could be a masterpiece, possibly. It's like it's like on on um uh Paul Verhoeven was a real tyrant ah. in Robocop. <laughs> and Peter Peter Weller actually tried to 
uh, go um, uh, method, like like uh, turn himself like into like a cyborg. Try to, yeah, yeah. He he wanted people on set to call him Robocop. Oh, okay. Um. Um, not even Murphy. Just, <laughs> I love that. Just call me Robocop. I am the movie. Um, all right, then I think that about wraps it up. Unless there's anything else anybody wants to talk about, anything that we haven't discussed already, Grace, do you anything jumping out at you? No, I don't think so. Just it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> it's really good. It will enrich your life immeasurably. Um, and, and here we just need Andrew saying, it's okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, we all agree. We, we all recommend it. Yeah, fair we point, like fair that. point. Um, but yes, um, all right then. With that in mind then, what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something, something you're enjoying at the moment, something you would like to share with listeners. So to give Grace and Dee a chance to think about what they'd like to recommend, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Uh, dystopian futures. I, I mentioned <laughs> Robocop, but I, I'll, I'll mention Gattaca because I don't think Gattaca yes. gets enough. That's a good show. Um, yeah, it's it, it's great, and the the, the, the um, I'll recommend the um, uh, American Prometheus, the the um, the Oppenheimer uh, biography again, because the, the the whole kind of basis of this is that it's in in the in the wreckage of a thermonuclear war. And I feel like we're sleeping on thermonuclear war. I, 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 we're we're I also think, worried about like economy and pandemic and all this oh, no, environment. No, but I, I, I think it, it's it's that we've that we've stopped kind of um, thinking about it as much that it's going to creep up. Um, I kind of love the idea of like Andrew's David Letterman list of top five apocalyptic futures for the thermonuclear wars. <laughs> well, I, like I think we should be worried about all sorts of things, <laughs> yeah. including thermonuclear yeah. war. Um, and that that we should have the courage to kind of um, uh, uh, confront these things, yeah. and, and and with which with um, yeah. All right then, and Grace, what would you recommend for listeners? Well, I don't know if this is wholesome per se, but um, it's been bringing me a lot of joy over the past two weeks that I was on sick leave. I have been binge watching Eeyore, that great medical drama of the nineties, on all four the the box sets. So, like all of the seasons are on there, and it is wonderful <laughs> i don't know what i find so soothing about an extremely fast-paced show where people are like routinely coming into the hospital in bits and ribbons and terrible things are happening not just to them but to the various characters but um i find it comforting in a very strange way and if you haven't watched it i'd recommend that it's it's a very fun show no it's very 90s there are certain things in it that have not aged well as one can be expected but um but it's good so that would be my shout Cool. And D, what would you recommend for listeners? Uh, yes, I prepared a few. And actually, um, Andrew, before I forget, I have to mention that I completely agree with you on the masterpiece that is Robocop. And I think it is an absolute <laughs> crying shame that it is not on the IMDb Top 250. I think it is a fabulous movie because I have heard you mention it on the podcast a number of times in episodes I've listened to. And I'm like, damn, yeah, Robocop is a good movie. Um, it's another great rewatchable one. Um, I also picked a couple of like post-apocalyptic um, themed movies. This is the End is on Netflix UK and Ireland. Now, obviously, it's a comedy, <laughs> very not of the nihilistic... Well, um, I think it so, is quite nihilistic at actually, times. That's true. It can be very nihilistic, <laughs> but it's a comedy and it's it's just a lot of fun. It's my favorite one starring like Seth Rogen and Jonah Hill and all the guys as they play um themselves and how they would handle the end of the world. They basically just get two times Academy Award nominee Jonah Hill. Um, <laughs> Oh my god it's gas uh but that one's a lot of fun i also saw greenland recently on amazon prime which i was pleasantly surprised at i was like watching it and i was like 
this is a disaster movie with Jared Butler and it's actually good. Like what's going on? Like it's not like kind of, you know, it's not going to blow the world away. But I think that it's this- not earth shattering, is it? Uh, uh, uh. Yeah. But I mean, the disaster movie is kind of a genre that's become like so worn. And I feel like it was very much around in kind of the 2000s when like CGI was becoming huge and stuff. So we haven't really seen a decent one in a while. And I quite enjoyed that. And then my very last recommendation, which is just if you're looking for something new, not related to the apocalypse, um, I care a lot. I saw this recently. It is the movie that Rosamund Pike got a Golden Globe nomination for recently. A very kind of cynical um like oh what's the word i'm looking for not reckless um oh irreverent no it's like oh when you have like no morals it begins with an or i've forgotten the word now but um it's it's she's absolutely fantastic and it's probably the best performance i've seen her give since gone girl although i thought that she was brilliant and radioactive as well that's another underrated one um but i care a lot is well worth seeking out it's totally different to any film that like you've seen before and it's very much a black black comedy so just be prepared for that peter dinklage is in it yes, as well if I yes remember. Yeah. peter dinklage and dion uh, dion west dion west i don't know how to pronounce that but yeah cool. she's great too right and three quick recommendations for myself first is because you know i like things that are bright and colorful this is the most orange movie ever apparently so there's another let's go with <laughs> another blue and pastel movie the wonderful barb and star go to vista del mar uh with the wonderful kirsten oh, wig and annie mamito uh, which i really liked jamie dornan's best performance which is saying something given his work featured on this podcast to date i was just gonna say like that that's a pretty low bar there <laughs> featuring not one but two improvised musical numbers and a rave sequence set to a rave version of my heart will go on i had a joy with it it is it is a very light comedy it's very goofy it reminds me of the 90s kind of like saturday night live comedies like wayne's world I had a lot of fun with it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, other recommendation, because we singled out Nicholas Holt. Uh, he's currently in, um, well, first of all, he's in The Favourite, uh, which if you haven't seen, is well worth seeking out. Um, and he's also in Tony McNamara's TV show, The Great, Ooh, uh, with the wonderful Elle Fanning as well. Yeah, where he plays, um, he plays Peter, Tsar Peter uh, of Russia, um, and says huzzah. And I think the best description of him that I've read is Nicholas Holt playing the douche at every Renaissance fair you've ever been to. <laughs> Um, and that's pretty much the. I've been to that many Renaissance fairs. <laughs> but that's that's kind of pretty much the kind of the bone of it there. And in terms of the last final recommendation, it's apocalyptic, and because it's in black and white, well, it's it's been reproduced in black and white. And Grace mentioned that you know normally putting something in black and white, there isn't always a reason to do it beyond the fact that black and white is inherently classy. But I think it works in this case. It's The Mist, uh, which is the movie from Frank Darabont, who directed um, the Shawshank Redemption and. The green mile on the top 250 but the mist is basically it's a an apocalyptic kind of nightmarish social drama based on the stephen king my novel. housemate loves that film <laughs> she gets very excited film. whenever i suggest watching the mist it's a great film it's like and it's really really bleak um which is oh my, that, that ending will <laughs> you up like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I don't know if I should sound as happy when I say it's really bleak. It's so bleak. I get very excited about how bleak it is. Um, but Unimaginably like, dark, you guys. Yeah. But if you watch it in <laughs> if you watch it in black and white, it actually works really well because it feels like a 1950s uh, kind of like Twilight <laughs> Like zone. Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> that, that's exactly what it feels like. And it actually feels like the right format for it. And also because like the CGI isn't like great in the color version, all of a sudden like the tentacles in the mist look like claymation when you put them in black and white. And it works really really well so yeah that would be my recommendation all right so people looking for a bit of d a bit of grace in their lives where can they find you so d where are you at 
Um, you can follow me at Deirdre Malumby, D-E-I-R-D-R-E-M-O-L-U-M-B-Y. I'm doing my little jingle again. Um, <laughs> so on Twitter, and then I also write for entertainment.ie. So if you click into an article, eventually you'll find me, and then you can click the little thing that says my name. And then all my there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm obviously doing a lot of on-demand reviews at the moment. Um, so you can see what I think about movies that are, you know, being released, even though cinemas are closed. There are new movies out there, guys. So see, check them out. So I think your on-demand reviews will be very much in demand. Eh? Eh? Ah. Uh, <laughs> and Grace, where can we find you? Watch up to. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Pixie Grace. Um, if I choose to allow you to follow me because my account is on private. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that's about it really. I kind of. Uh, take a t- took a break from the internet for the past year for the most part because being online during a pandemic is not good for the soul. So, yeah. yeah. For the price of a pint, someone can follow you. Don't even make me think about pints right now. <laughs> <laughs> so sad. I do love that the apocalypse that we're living through is much less fun, involves a lot less driving than Mad Max thought it would, to be fair. Um, Although, to be fair, you know how um, you can get takeaway pints if they're delivered? You just can't go and like pick them up. We there's a pub literally thirty seconds down the road from us, and we ask them to deliver us pints, which involved them driving like two meters up the road just for the sake of it. So that's been my highlight of lockdown so far. <laughs> Perfect. Um, all right then. That may also be a stealth recommendation, although we can't call it as much because of alcohol advertising regulations. <laughs> um, we'll be back next week. When we'll be joined by the wonderful Niall Glenn and Richard Drum uh, to talk about the wonderful Mac and Me. And we'll hope you join us for that oh wonderful bit of product placement. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back next week. Take it easy, guys. Bye. Thank you so much, Dean Grace. Sorry for keeping you so late. Thanks so much, guys. No worries. The wonderful Mac and Me. <laughs> that's, that's just given me nightmarish flashbacks to that, um, that oh, film. Jesus. Andrew, Niall had suggested that oh. we all order McDonald's and eat it on the podcast. That was oh, Niall. Jesus. I, I, would, I would actually agree with that. It's called yeah. like mukbang or something, isn't it? Like there's a whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Like people I wanted like... to do, uh, I wanted to do my own mukbang. It's kind of gross, though. <laughs> Honestly, well, I don't get. I don't get gross. how there's a whole cult following, like of people listening to people eating while having conversations. I find <laughs> it really like, off-putting. I've, Drinking is have different. Like a baking dish full of noodles. <laughs> <laughs> just kind of eating. <laughs> um, all right.